0: What if I told you that the biggest issue that we face in the world today, it's not climate change, it's not economic recession, it's not loss of our religious freedom, it's not social media or racism or disease or food shortages or even war. Those are not our biggest issues that we face. The biggest issue that we face in the world today is worship. Now, worship isn't actually the problem. The problem is misdirected worship. Another word for that is idolatry, like we talked about with the kids. Idolatry is whenever we take something good, a gift from God, and we turn it into an ultimate thing, the most important thing in our lives. And I was reminded of this this last week when I saw on the news that the Mega Millions jackpot had gotten up over one billion dollars. Now, I, never, I don't ever play the lottery, so I only hear about how much it's worth when I see it on the news. And by then, it's usually worth a lot. And inevitably, when I hear something like that, do you know what goes through my head? What would I do if I got the money? And I'm sure there's probably some others of you out there that have thought that same thing this last week. What would I do if I got that money? Because that's quite a bit of money. Now, I know that you don't actually get the $1 billion. If you take the lump sum after taxes and everything, you get about $400 million. That's still quite a bit of money. I mean, I could fill up my gas tank with that kind of money. <laughs> but but here's, the, here's the problem as I'm thinking those things. Because I get self-righteous about it. You see, I, I think I, I wouldn't be the greedy person. I wouldn't go out and buy a bunch of different stuff. I would be responsible with my money. I was just talking with somebody earlier about the Financial Peace University class over there. You know, I, I, would, I would do it the right way. And I wouldn't buy the nicest car. I wouldn't buy the biggest house. I, I'd give some money away, that's good. And then I would probably just save a lot of it. And wouldn't it be great just to have that money in your bank account? Just knowing that in case anything bad ever happened, I have that money. It's there to keep me safe, to keep me secure. No matter what happens, I've got this money. And and it would free me up for so many things in life. Because I wouldn't have to be worried about money. I wouldn't have to be worried about paying the bills. I can just serve God and, and do his will in the world. And I'm not worried about how much money I'm making. I've got that. I'm secure. I'm safe. And maybe you already see the problem with that. That money has become my idol. It's where my hope is at. My confidence is in that money. My safety, my security, my happiness is in that thing. Because I can already live that way now when I trust that God has got me covered. When I trust that God is there to keep me safe and secure and to provide for me. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, tells us that the human heart is an idol factory. We as humans are really good at making idols. You see, we were made to worship. We were created to worship. And so the problem is that we worship just about anything and everything except for the one who is worthy of our worship. We take these good things that God gives and we turn them into gods. We turn them into ultimate things. The most important thing in my life, that all of my safety and my security and my happiness is in that thing. And inevitably, though, it can never live up to that standard. It can never fully satisfy. It can never live up. And when everything falls apart, I'm left in despair. C.S. Lewis reflects on this by saying this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Revelation 4 and 5 today, we're going to get to peek behind the curtain into that other world, and we're going to see the right, true, good worship that takes place there. Like I said, we're in Revelation 4 and 5 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 1030. And here in Revelation, we're at a transition point. If you remember Pastor Bob back in chapter one, he talked about that there's three different literary genres in the book of Revelation. There's, it's, a, it's an epistle, it's a letter written to these churches. And then it's also a revelation. It's, it's this vision that God is, is bringing to John. And then lastly, there's also a narrative flow. There's a sequen, sequence of events. There's a story that's happening. These things that John is seeing tell us a story. And so the last two chapters were on that letter, the epistle part of it, and now we've transitioned into more of the revelation part of it. This is John having a vision. So we're gonna see that, but we're also going to see in the narrative. We're gonna see the story that's being told through these two chapters. And so, because of that, I actually wanna do um, something a little bit different today with with these two chapters. I wanna go through them three times. The first time, we're gonna walk through just the story. What's the narrative flow? What's the story going on here? The second time, we're going to walk through um, some of the meaning behind these images. Apocalyptic literature, Revelation here, is full of very dense imagery, and understanding the meaning behind that can really help us understand what's going on here. So we're going to pick just a few of the images, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into them. And then finally, we're going to take a look at the songs or praises that are sung in these two chapters. There's five of them, and by digging in and kind of looking at what's going on in each of those, it's going to really get us to the heart of what these two chapters are all about. Worshiping the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, just like we sang about earlier. So let's start with the narrative. Let's start with just the story. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So after Jesus has given him these words to bring to the seven churches, we have that transition. He sees a door open. And that door leads to heaven. And then there's a voice. And actually, it's the first voice that he heard back in chapter 1. Then we find out that it was Jesus himself talking to him. And so Jesus says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John goes, he enters in through the door. And what does he see? He sees A throne. And we realize that he is in the very throne room of heaven. What's gonna happen over these next two chapters is we're gonna see a description of the throne room of heaven, and then we're gonna see a description of some events that take place there. So he sees the throne, and he sees one seated on the throne. And then he gives us this beautiful description, relating it to these precious stones, a rainbow of light. This, this beautiful description of God's throne and, and what it looks like around it. And it's supposed to activate your imagination, understanding just the, the brilliance of God's throne room and how beautiful and brilliant and baffling it really is. As John explains some of that, he sees, he sees some of that. And then he sees some other people, some other beings around the throne. The first ones he sees is 24 elders on 24 thrones And they have white robes on and crowns on their heads, these 24 elders around the throne. Then he sees four living creatures there. And these living creatures are kind of strange. They have six wings and eyes all over the place, and they each have a different face. One has the face of a lion, another has the face of an ox, and there's one that has a face of a human, and the last one has the face of an eagle. And these four living creatures and these elders around the throne, they bow down and they worship the one on the throne, all day and all night, all the time they're bowing down to worship the one on the throne. And that's chapter 4. That whole chapter is just about this description of God's throne room and then the worship that is taking place there. Then we have a shift in chapter 5. We see a different kind of event take place. It opens up and John sees that there's a scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne. And this scroll is written all over it. On the inside, on the outside, all over it's written on. And it has seven seals. This is a very important scroll. And there's a mighty angel who asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to open this scroll? John then tells us, verse 3 here of chapter 5, and no one in heaven... Or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And we find, he says, I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. I wanna slow down here for just a moment and try to get a better understanding of what John's feeling, because I've always been surprised by this. Whenever I read this, I'm always kinda like, come on, John, what's going on? We're only on chapter five, there's like 17 more chapters. It's gonna work out in the end. But he doesn't know that. John, one of the apostles of Jesus, who saw Jesus die on the cross, saw him raised from the dead, saw him ascend into heaven, he saw this wonderful, miraculous start of the church and the gospel going out to all nations, he saw all of these people being saved and coming to faith in Jesus. Then the persecution came, and he saw the people around him suffering, all of his friends dying. He himself suffering, but he still had hope. He still had hope that God would make it all right again in the end. And then he gets this revelation on this island that he's been exiled to, and this is just what he needs to see what is really going on, to see where, where are you, God? What are you doing in the midst of all of the brokenness of the world? But no one is worthy to carry out God's plan. It stopped. That scroll represents God's justice, God's kingdom, God's rule coming to the earth again. That scroll represents his plan to to finish what he has started with Jesus' death and resurrection, to make everything right again, and no one can fulfill it. No one is worthy to make it happen. You can imagine the despair that John would feel. His hope, his confidence being destroyed. But it's not over. The mighty angel then tells him, weep no more. Don't cry, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy to carry out God's plan. There is one who is worthy to do this. And what John hears is that it's a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you can just imagine him expecting to turn and to see Aslan standing there. This big, strong lion. It's going to make everything right again. That's what he hears. But what he sees is something different. Verse 6. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. As though it had been slain. He doesn't see a lion. He sees the opposite of a lion. He sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that looks like it's been killed. And yet... That lamb is standing because it has conquered and it is worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, to carry out God's plan to finish. So he sees that. This this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And then he sees the lamb go and take the scroll from the one on the throne. And what happens for the next Of the chapters, there's three more songs sung right in succession to one another, and each time more people join in with the singing. So, right when the Lamb takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders bow down and they sing a new song of worship to the Lamb. And after they sing that song, then thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads of angels join in and they sing with the other ones, with the the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing another song very similar to that last one. And then finally, all of creation, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, they sang another song to the one on the throne and to the lamb. They give God and the lamb the worship that they are worthy of. And it ends the four living creatures saying, amen. It is true. And the elders fall down and they worship. So that is is the basic story of what's going on here. We saw a description of the throne room, the worship that's taking place there, and then we saw this event of, of this scroll that no one was worthy to open, but then we find out there is one who is worthy. It's the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to open the scroll, and when he takes the scroll, everyone bows down and worships him. So this section of Revelation, it's giving us a peek behind the curtain, into the throne room of heaven, into this worship that's going on there. And we also see this this important event in history of the lamb receiving the scroll, ready to to carry out God's plan to, to fix all that is broken in the world. So we get that big picture story, but now I want to walk through it again. And I want to look at a couple of the details that are going on here. Like I mentioned earlier, there's so much imagery and it's all packed with meaning. What is going on here? But we don't have time to go through it all. I actually went through it all and realized it was going to be about three sermons worth. And so I decided not to do that. We're just going to focus on a few of the really important ones, especially um, the, the creatures, the different creatures that we see, and, um, uh, or characters that we see, and the imagery behind them and what it all means. But before we do that, I want to give you a broader perspective. We've got this vision of the throne room of heaven. And as we read that, we should be thinking about other passages in the Bible that there are also visions of the throne room of heaven, because we're going to see connections there. We're going to understand things better if we go back to those other passages, if we read this in light of those. And so just to bring up a few of them that are in the Bible, the first one is in Exodus 19. Now, this isn't a vision of the throne room of heaven, but this is God's throne coming down onto Mount Sinai. And you see some of the th- same things going on there at that time with Moses that we see going on here in this vision. Then just a few chapters later, we get this design for the tabernacle, and that design of the tabernacle and eventually the temple actually reflects God's throne room in heaven. It's, like, it's almost like a miniature model of God's throne room in heaven. And so some of the imagery that's used there, the precious gems that are described on the priestly clothing, are connected to what we're seeing here in Revelation 4 and 5. But the main two passages that you want to think about are Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah describes this vision that he has of heaven and what he sees there, the throne room of heaven. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we actually have God's throne chariot coming down to earth, to Babylon no less, and the vision that Ezekiel sees there. So we're going to reference both of those passages in a little bit. But this brings also out the key of of how we should be interpreting Revelation, So often, people want to interpret Revelation in light of what's going on in the world around us. So we look around, we look at the newspaper, whatever, and we go, okay, this must mean that. But that's not a good way to interpret Revelation. The way we interpret Revelation is actually by going back to the Old Testament. So many, most of the images and the symbols and the signs that we see in Revelation are found in the Old Testament. And when we go back and we connect those passages to it, we get a better understanding of what's really going on here. So, The first one that we're going to do is the 24 elders. But I hate to disappoint you, we don't actually really know who they are. There isn't actually a good connection to anything in the Old Testament that tells us exactly who they are. There's plenty of speculation, and I love to speculate, but I'm not going to do that right now. If you want to speculate with me after the service, I'd be happy to talk to you about who these 24 elders might be. We don't know for sure, but we do get an indication of what they might be. There's some debate about this. Are they humans, part of redeemed humanity, or are they spiritual beings? Are they angelic beings? And I just want to share with you where I land on this subject. Where I land is that they are spiritual beings. These are not humans. These are not part of redeemed humanity. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them comes out in Revelation 5, verse 10, where they're singing this song, and they say, "'And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth.'" So there seems to be this, as they're talking about redeemed humanity, as they're talking about humans, they're talking about them as other, not as themselves. They're not joining in with that. Now, there is some debate on how to translate this. However, where I land, like I said, I'm convinced that they and them is the correct translation. Because in chapter 7, we see another interaction between one of the elders and John that seems to point towards this. Uh, The elders are not identifying themselves with redeemed humanity. And so, if they're not humans, if they're not redeemed humanity, then they must be spiritual beings. Here's the thing, though. This is a secondary issue. This does not matter all that much. It does not change the meaning of the passage. Actually, to get to what's really important with these is to look at what they do and who they are. The little bit of description we do get, I want you to think about this. These aren't just some random people in heaven. They have thrones. They sit on thrones next to the one throne, and they have crowns on their heads. These are some of the most important beings in the universe. And yet, day and night, all the time, what do they do? They bow down, they cast their crowns before the throne, and they worship. The one who is worthy. The next set of creatures that we see are the four living creatures. We do get some help from the Old Testament in this, definitely in Ezekiel chapter one, but possibly also in Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah, in his vision, he sees, uh, he describes these, these, uh, these beings, these creatures that he sees as seraphim. And um, they they have multiple wings, and um, they sing a very similar song to what we see here, Holy, Holy, Holy. So there definitely seems to be a connection between these four living creatures and the ones that Isaiah sees in chapter 6. But then you get to Ezekiel chapter 1, and he sees something very similar. He sees four living creatures. Um, The only difference is, rather than each of them having a unique face... They, each of them have all four faces, so it's kind of weird. But you can imagine, uh, you know, your head has four sides, and so on one side is a lion, on one side is an ox, on one side is a human, and then a fa- human face, and then the other side is an eagle's face. And so we definitely see a connection between these four living creatures there and the ones in Revelation. Um, just the ones in Revelation each have their own one; they have one face, and each face is unique with those four animals. And that's where we actually get the meaning behind what in the world are these. Well, I want you to think about the lion, the ox, the human, and the eagle. So they each kind of represent the best of, in their category. The lion is the king of beasts. The ox is the strongest of the cattle of domesticated animals. Humans are the pinnacle of creation, and eagles are kind of the king of birds. So these represent all of created creatures. These represent all of creation. And what do they do? Day and night, all the time, what are they doing? They're bowing down and they're worshiping the one on the throne. All of creation bows down to worship the one on the throne. You can see the theme that we're tracking throughout this chapter. Worshiping the one who is worthy. The last character that I want to focus on is the lion and the lamb. This is really important for us to understand. So, after the whole thing with the scroll, no one is worthy, but there is one who is worthy. Here is how this one who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, here is how he is described. He's described as the Lion of Judah. Now, to understand that, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 49 where Jacob gives this kind of prophetic blessing over his sons. Remember, he's the one that had 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Judah. So he gives this prophetic blessing, and he calls out each one. And when he gets to Judah, here's a couple of the lines that he gives. He says this, Judah is a lion's cub, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So we see there the connection between Judah being, and being a lion, but we also see something else. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And if you remember The tribe of Judah was where the line of kings was supposed to come from. The kings were supposed to be from Judah. Now, they always didn't come from there, but that was where the rightful king would come from, is from the family, from the tribe of Judah. So we hear that, and we get an indication, okay, this is the king of Israel. The king of Israel is the one that's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. But then we hear something else. He's also called the root of David, now this connects back to Isaiah 11 and we see a couple of phrases in here but the first one says this There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now if you remember Jesse is David's father so we're talking about the same thing here that we're not just talking about any king we're talking about a king from the line of David of whom God said in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There was a promise to King David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever and ever, would rule over the earth forever and ever. And here he is the lion of Judah, the root of David. Now remember, We've got this, so we've got this, the king of, of Israel, uh, one of the messianic king, the promised Messiah king who has conquered and can open the scroll. So that's what we hear. We hear the line of Judah, the root of David, but what we see is a lamb who looks like it's been killed. Now, lamb is another image that we see all throughout the Bible. Going all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover, remember, um, God is, is bringing his plagues upon Egypt, and the last plague is coming, the death of all the firstborn. But God has made a way for his people to be saved from that. He tells them to slaughter a lamb at twilight and to put the, the blood over the door, and everyone who did that, the, the wrath of God would pass over them and would not kill their firstborn son. This lamb was sacrificed in order to save their lives. We see this image continue on in the sacrificial system, the sacrifice and worship system that's established in Israel. Uh, The lamb was one of the sacrifices that would be made um, to offer covering for sin. And especially uh, whenever you had your firstborn son, they belonged to God and you would redeem that firstborn son back by offering a lamb in its place. So we see some connections there, and there's, there's so much here that we can't possibly get into all of it, and if some of it you're like, I don't get what's going on here, that's okay. Keep reading your Bible. You're gonna get more and more of this the more you know God's word. Another passage that comes up is Isaiah 53. This is the passage of the suffering servant, where it says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that it before its shears is silent. The suffer- there's a connection between the lamb and the suffering servant. And then finally, We get to the New Testament, and John the baptizer by the Jordan River, he sees Jesus coming towards him to be baptized. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a spoiler there. The Lamb is Jesus, if you hadn't already figured that out. The the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who was slain, this is Jesus, the one who died on the cross, who conquered death for us, who rescued us from our sins and made a way for us to be with him forever. We see the importance of these images as we go through, the importance of these different beings that are worshiping God day and night, and the importance of the object of their worship, the lamb who was slain, that is Jesus. So now the last thing that I want to do is I want to walk through those five songs to get a better understanding, to really get at the heart of what this passage is showing us today. So there's a structure to the five songs. Uh, There's the first two are directed at the one on the throne, at God the Father, and the second two are directed at the Lamb, and then the last one is directed at the one on the throne and the Lamb. So as we look at this first one, we read this. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 8, the end of verse 8. The four living creatures sing this Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever you find a word in the Bible that's repeated three times in a row like that, it means most. So God is not holy. God is not holier. God is holy, yes. He is the most holy holy. And holy means set apart. So it's like saying God is, is holy other than us. He's not just this exalted human. He's not just this great human. He is set apart. He is different than all of us as the uncreated God of the universe. And it goes, what goes right along with that is, this, is these character traits that he's almighty, he's, he's all-powerful, and he's eternal. So this first song is focused on recognizing God for who he is. This is a recognition, God, this is true about you. You are holy, you are almighty, you are eternal. And that is a great way to praise God, is praising him for who he is. Then the second one, the second song, this one is sung by the 24 elders at the same time that the four living creatures are singing their song. And this is what they sing. This is verse 11 of chapter 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. So this, this goes beyond just recognition, right? It's good to recognize God for who he is, but you can recognize God for who he is and not like it, not like that it's true, and yet they're recognizing here you're worthy. This word is going to come up two more times, and it's a really important word because it's a recognition that that. God deserves this. God deserves to receive glory and honor and power because he created all things and by all things, they, and all things exist because of him. God deserves to be worshiped. We're happy to worship him because he's worthy of that worship. So those first two songs are sung to the one on the throne, to the father. And now we transition once again after the event with the scroll, the lamb takes the scroll and now we're going to have three more songs, songs sung right in a row. Um, and more and more people are added to the singing as it goes on. But this first one here, the song number three, I should say, is sung by the four living creatures and by the 24 elders. And it's a new song. And they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What they're saying here is that the the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And the reason is, is because he died on the cross, because he was slain, because he conquered through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. This kind of comes up later, but this is important for us to understand right now. This scroll represents God's judgment, God's justice, his rule coming to the earth. And although we often would say that, that God has the right to bring his judgment no matter what, that, that isn't really consistent with how he sees himself. Because God is not just a God of judgment, he's also a God of mercy. And so it makes sense that the one who is worthy to bring God's judgment is also the one who brought God's mercy to the world. The one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins He's the one who is worthy to bring God's judgment because he first made a way for us to be saved, because he first brought God's mercy. So we know that this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is worthy because he died on the cross. He ransomed um, a people for God from every tribe and language and nation. And and these people will be made a kingdom of priests. They will rule with God again. So this praise to the Lamb. Now we have more people join in, more beings join in, thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads of angels join in, and they sing a very similar song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Did you count how many things were mentioned there? There's seven mentioned. We haven't really talked about it today, but seven is the number of completion in the Bible, and you find it all over the book of Revelation. Revelation. This is like saying that Jesus is worthy of all, all, all praise. He's worthy of all of it. Then, everyone else joins in. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, they say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This last song brings it all to a close. It's directed at both the one on the throne and the Lamb. And it goes on forever and ever. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So we see these five songs that are sung and they're wonderful. Um, Pastor, Bob, or Pastor Evan and I were talking earlier just that, this is, that these chapters are a worship pastor's dream. Um, because so many great songs are written out of them. And it's just such a wonderful scene of worship and right worship. The way worship is supposed to be. And so we see this spectacular image, this spectacular vision of right worship going on in heaven. And hopefully that's inspirational to us. Hopefully we get inspired by that and we go, yeah, this is a great thing. This is wonderful. I should worship like that. And we're going to do that in a few minutes here. We're going to worship. And it's going to be great. But the question that's still ringing in my mind is, okay, yeah, but what about the rest of my life? Like how does this apply to just the day-to-day stuff that's going on? And to understand that, I want to tell you a story. So a little over a week ago, um, not this last weekend, but the weekend before, we had the middle school camp out. And uh, as I was preparing, as I was getting ready to go on the middle school camp out, I ran into a problem, into an issue. And actually, that issue started a couple days before when the radiator in my car started leaking. And as if many of you know, this is the worst time of year to have a radiator leak and I just did not have time to deal with it. It was like it was a crazy week, so I'm like, I just need to park it and forget about it. We'll figure something else out. So that's what I did. Now, luckily, Jill, my wife, her dad, wasn't using his truck that weekend. So we were able to borrow that, and it was like, okay, great. This just works out great. We'll use the truck. We'll get everything up to middle school camp out. This will be great. So Friday comes, and we had a lot of stuff to bring up. We were, the middle school camp out was at the male's house, and so I had to load up stuff from the church to bring it up there. And so I hooked up my utility trailer to the truck, Got it here, I loaded up all the stuff that we needed, and I got ready to go. When it was time to go, I got in the car, and I put the key in the ignition, and I turned it. And you know what happened? Nothing. And it wouldn't start. Now, I actually wasn't that surprised. You see, we had borrowed the truck like a week before and had an issue with it not starting then. But we, had a, we figured out it was a problem with like the starter relay, and you could do this thing where you hook a wire up to the fuse box, and you touch the battery, and it would start. Um, so, but we had replaced the relay, and it was working great. Like thought it wasn't going to be an issue again, um, but obviously it was. But I thought, no problem. I'll just hook up the wire to the starter relay again, touch the battery. It'll start up. No problem. Fine. So I pop the hood. I get in there. I hook the wire up, and what happens? Nothing. It's not starting. It's not starting. And I try over and over, and I try all sorts of different combinations. You're, like, turning the key different ways, and maybe it'll start now. And nothing's working. I spent an hour in the hot parking lot at the church trying to get this truck started while they're waiting for me to bring Step Up for middle school camp out, and it's just not working. And I was so frustrated. And I was so frustrated at God. Because in that moment, I knew, I recognized that God is holy, that he's all-powerful, that he's sovereign over everything in the universe. And so that means that God could have prevented this from happening, and yet he wasn't, and I just didn't get it. God, I'm trying to do something good here. I'm trying to to put on this this middle school retreat. I'm trying to, you know, that they're going to learn about God, they're going to grow in their relationship with God, and it's going to be great. I'm trying to do this. Why won't you just let me do it? Why did you put this stumbling block in the way? So I was frustrated. But here's the worst part. I knew that I shouldn't be frustrated. I knew that it wasn't right for me to be frustrated, that I was in the wrong, and I should give God glory and trust in Him, but I just couldn't get myself out of my bad attitude. And maybe you've been there before. Stuck in that place, and you know it's not the place you're supposed to be. Frustrated, you've got a bad attitude. You're certainly not worshiping God and you know that that's wrong, but you just can't get yourself out of it. And maybe it's hard. Maybe you've experienced somebody else in that position. You're just kind of like, come on, pull it together. Give God glory. Just, Just fix your bad attitude, get it right, and it'll be okay. But in that moment, even though I knew what the right thing to do was, I knew that my worship was wrong in that moment, I just couldn't fix it on my own. Now, in the end, um, we we worked it out. The, the truck didn't start. We ended up having to get a different car in, and it worked out. We made it up there. We had a great weekend. But it wasn't until this last week, as I was digging into Revelation 4 and 5, that I really realized what my problem was. Because I knew the symptoms of it. I wasn't worshiping rightly, and yet, what was the root cause of it? Why was that going on? Why would I have that bad attitude? It was a problem of hope. Not just hope, but but confidence. What was my hope in? What was my confidence in in that moment? Because here's the problem that happens. So often we put our hope, we put our confidence in the wrong thing, and then it doesn't work out. And it's not surprising because we're putting it in earthly things that can never live up to the standard we've given it. And when everything falls apart, we're left in despair in sorrow. The world's fallen apart. We don't know what to do. We put our hope in the wrong thing. We've lost our hope. My hope that day was in my own work. It was in my ability to make things happen. I was confident in myself to put on this retreat. I was confident in myself to fix the truck. I'm a handy guy, and so it was kind of an insult to myself when I couldn't figure it out, and I felt that. And when I couldn't figure it out, when I couldn't fix the truck... I was left in despair. I know what you're thinking. It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a broken car. Like, what's the big deal? But that's why this is the perfect example. I didn't want to give a life-shattering event here because this is the kind of stuff that happens to us day in and day out. And when our hope is in the wrong place, when our confidence is in the wrong thing, that leads us to idolatry, to misdirected worship. Misinformed hope leads to misdirected worship. And then that leads us to worshiping the wrong thing. That idolatry leads us to worshiping the wrong thing. John was led to despair in Revelation 4. Now I want to be clear here that John's hope was in the right thing. His confidence was in the right thing. He, his hope was in Jesus and his ability to finish what God had started, his ability to, to make everything right again. That's where John was, John's hope was, and that's exactly where it should have been. But in that moment in the throne room of heaven when no one was worthy to take the scroll and to open it, when no one was willing, no one was able, no one was worthy to carry out God's plan to make everything right again, he despaired. What would happen? And you can imagine how he felt, like we talked about earlier in that moment. What John needed most. John who had been exiled, who had suffered, who had been persecuted for the name of Jesus, who had seen his friends die, who had seen the church movement start off great and then, and then get persecuted against. John who was told with the other disciples that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, and yet he's sitting there watching all of this horrible stuff happen, and finally he gets... The hope he's asked for. And yet, no one is worthy. And what he needed right then, there, in that moment, was to be reminded that there is a God who sits on his throne. And that Jesus has conquered, and Jesus is worthy to make everything right again. Those seven churches that were written to in the last two chapters, that are rebuked, many of them are rebuked by Jesus for their ungodly behavior, you can feel how they would feel you're not running your church the way you think you are you're not doing it the right way and you would feel despair what they needed most in that moment was the next two chapters to be reminded that god was still on his throne and that jesus was going to make everything right in the end again what we need most we who know that jesus died on the cross for our sins We who know that he rose from the dead again, that he conquered, that he's given us new power to live a new life right now, and he's also going to come back again, and yet we look at the world around us. It's a mess, and things are falling apart, and we see the trouble and the difficulties and the struggles in the world, and we ask God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen we look at the suffering of our family and our friends and those close to us. We ask, why, God, why are you allowing this to happen? We look at the struggles and the difficulties in our own life, the things that are happening to us, our own struggles with sin, and we ask, God, why are you allowing this to happen? The car won't start. And we ask, God, why are you allowing this to happen? What we need most in that moment is not just to figure it ourselves out, is not just to redirect our worship. What we need is hope. What we need is hope in the right thing. We need to be reminded that Jesus, our King, conquered death on the cross and he is worthy to bring God's plan to completion. He is worthy to bring God's justice and God's kingdom to this earth. He's worthy to make everything right again. No matter how difficult my situation is in my life right now, what I need to remember is right now, in this very instant, God, the God of the universe, is on his throne being worshipped day and night. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will make everything right again. In a few minutes, we're going to worship with one last song. And I think that worship is going to be easy. Our hearts are hopefully in the right place and we're going to be able to worship and it's going to be wonderful. But the problem's going to come with the rest of the week because there's a good chance this week that you're going to struggle with worship. The human heart is an idol factory and we all have these idols that we struggle with. There's these things, these gifts that we've been given from God that we've made ultimate things, that we've put all of our hope and all of our our happiness and all of our joy and all of our safety and security in that thing, and it will never live up to it. That's because we have a problem with our hope. So this week, in the midst of those idols that we're struggling with, in the midst of misdirected worship that we're struggling with, we need to remember Revelation 4 and 5. We need to remember that God is on his throne and Jesus is going to make everything right again. No matter what is wrong in your life right now, Jesus will make it right. And remembering that truth, remembering what our hope and our confidence truly is in, will lead us to powerful, right, glorious worship of the one who is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, We give you all glory and honor and praise because you are worthy. You are holy, 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 the almighty God who was and is and is to come. And our hope is in you because of what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. That through Jesus, through this lamb that was slain, that died on the cross for our sins, that made a way for us to be one with you again, his work is not done. He will bring to completion everything that needs to be done. He will make everything right again. And our greatest hope in this life is in that. God, I pray that you would help us this week when we are tempted to look look to things, to look to gifts that you've given us, created things, as our ultimate hope, Is our ultimate object of worship, God, I pray that you would help us in the midst of that see that our hope is really in you and that our worship is to be for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us with that this week. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot just change our minds. We need to be reminded of the true hope that we have in you, of the God of the universe and the Lamb who was slain. We pray this all in the name of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who conquered, Jesus. Amen.